Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me two special guests, Brad Livingston, who worked for the gas company for well over 10 years until he had a life-changing event that was 100% preventable. I'm also joined with Kayla Rath, uh, who is uh, his favorite daughter, uh, and she'll share a little bit about her perspective and, and what it meant to be part of the family when that event happened. So welcome, both of you. Really excited to have both of you here with me today. Thank you, Eric. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So, Brad, why don't you start maybe sharing a little bit about the day of the accident, kind of what what transpired? I know when we talked, you, you really talked about how it was 100% preventable. If you could tell me a little bit of, of what happened that day uh, in, in the store there. Okay. I was uh, upgraded that day to be a welder helper. It wasn't my normal job. Um, but I was feeling in for the regular welder helper who was gone that day on vacation. Happy to do it. I was, I was enjoying my job. And uh, I went to work that morning with a senior welder. We drove to a location other than where we normally work to do some welding. Um, we did some welding until 10 o'clock, which was our break time, and we went in to take a break. And um, our company pumper came out and said that he had a well just right outside the station yard from where we were that had two tanks on it, and both tanks had a pinhole leak in a weld that went around the fire tube. Mm-hmm. So a pinhole leak on each tank. Asked the senior welder if we could put that on the schedule sometime to fix it. The senior welder said we would do it while we were there. Uh, and there's a reason for that. But we drove over to the well, and um, I checked the atmosphere around outside of those tanks where we were going to be doing the welding to check for an explosive level, and everything was fine. Mm-hmm. So the welder started to roll out the leads, and I asked him what was going to keep a spark from setting the tanks off because what sure. was in the tanks was some crude oil that that well made. It also made a lot of drip gas or condensate gas, which is just like gasoline. Mm-hmm. It's water that was down in the gas formation, and when you bring the natural gas up out of the ground, the water will come with it, and it's taking on the characteristics of the natural gas, and that's what makes it so much like gasoline. Sure. So... I asked him if we need to gauge the tanks and, and double-check the liquid level because he was counting on there being liquid behind where he was going to be welding. So that would prevent him from getting too hot as he welded on that tank and he would not blow a hole in it and cause the explosion. Uh, so he's counting on that liquid being there, so I suggested that we gauge the tank and double-check that liquid level. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this welder, um, whose name was Tracy, had worked for the company for 30 years, and he said, we don't have time. So 
that's a big red flag because right. it's a procedure. Mm-hmm. Part of doing following the procedures is to double check that liquid level. And so um, it would have taken maybe three minutes at the very most, I believe three minutes, and I would have gauged the tanks. He had been told, what he told me, that there was seven or eight feet of liquid in those tanks, and there was actually less than 12 inches. Oh, my goodness. Which meant he ended up welding above the liquid level. And so then he got too hot, blew a hole in the tank. So had we actually followed procedures and gauged the tanks, we would not have done the welding. So we argued about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tried to convince him to just stop and let me gauge the tanks. My actual role should have been to just mm-hmm. go to the truck and get tape and walk up the catwalk and open the hatch and gauge the tank. Sure. If I'd have done that, he would have waited for me. Uh, that's the, He was a, a very conscientious worker and welder, and he he always looked out for the safety of every, everyone else. And so I know he would have waited for me, but I was wanting him to agree with me <laughs> instead of insisting on stopping him and uh, taking that kind of step. And so we didn't get the gauges, the tanks gauged. And uh, on the second tank that he was welding on, uh, he burnt through the hole or burnt through the tank, and that tank exploded. Wow. Uh, blew me up into the air. I landed on top of the other tank, and eight to ten seconds later, that tank exploded, threw me back onto the ground, uh, which actually helped save my life because I was burning to death. I was surrounded by flames. My clothes were on fire. So the tech second tank, when it exploded, actually um, was a good thing for me because otherwise I would have mm. burned to death before I could have ever got down off of that tank. Wow. So one of the, the big issues was that when we were welding, we were working for a supervisor on that lease that Tracy didn't like. And so that was why he was in a hurry to get the tanks done uh, so that we could get in, get that welding done, get off the lease, and he would no longer be working for a supervisor that he didn't like. Uh, The other issue was at that time, our company was frowning on overtime. Mm. So we had a full day of welding scheduled. Now we've added another job to that day. So Tracy thought we we just have to cut this short, take a shortcut, and not follow all the procedures, and be back home before we got into overtime. Wow. So, so there's there's several red flags, like mm-hmm. half a dozen red flags, before the explosions ever happened. That someone, including myself, of course could have uh-huh. stopped what was going on and it it didn't get done uh, we had another supervisor that had pulled up that was on location uh-huh. uh, he he and I visited for maybe just 20 or 30 seconds while Tracy was welding on the first tank and then when while he was moved to the second tank to weld uh, so he was he was slightly burned 
when his first explosion happened, the, the ball of fire came at him. He was in his pickup, and he just slid across the seat and got out and ran away from it. Unfortunately, Tracy was killed. Uh, apparently, as a result of the first explosion, because it came out of the tank right where he was welding. So, uh, a decision that was made based mm -hmm. on a few other things yet to be mentioned, but um, not wanting to talk to a supervisor because he didn't like him to make sure it was okay to go do this right. job. Uh, wanting to save time, three minutes. Mm -hmm. um, he lost his life, and I was supposed to have lost mine. Uh, they they told my family the explosions were on Friday morning and Saturday. They told my family I wouldn't make it through the night. 63% uh, burn with second and third degree burns. And uh, so oh. all of this basically over a shortcut. Three minutes short. One other issue. Wow. Yeah. One, one other issue I'll go ahead and, and mention mm -hmm. is uh, Tracy told me on the way over to that well that he had just built these fire tubes about six months ago in the shop. And uh, someone else had walked through the shop and saw those pinholes and told Tracy so he could grind them out, patch them, and, and he forgot to do it before it got put into service. So that morning when the pumper told us about the two pinhole leaks, Tracy remembered that he had been told about those. And mm. so he basically said, we're going to go and take care of this, and no one needs to know that I had made that mistake, that he right. had forgot to fix those pinholes in the shop. So it, as, you know, a serious pride issue came into play, partly because of the supervisor that he didn't want to weld for just while we're on this lease. So there's, there's several things there that, that are, Tracy, like I said, looked out for everybody, for everyone's safety, except his own when it right. came to someone that he didn't want to talk to. So all of those issues were at play. Uh, I could have stopped that anywhere along the line. But instead of doing the steps to stop it, I just argued with him. Hmm. And there's obviously a big difference between the two. So that's what happened. You know, that's a, a quick rundown of what happened at the scene the day of the accident. Well, it, it, two things as well that, that strike me from what you just shared. One is the importance of the supervisor and how the supervisor becomes approachable, people can speak up, uh, raise issues. Because I think when you're, when you fear what could go wrong with a supervisor, then you can take shortcuts as well as, as you've shared, uh, or, or you worry about a, a consequence that's lesser than, than the two. The other part that strikes me is the fear of reprisal and as opposed to a real learning organization. And, and when you're learning, these things surface, uh, and people are comfortable taking responsibility because the they know that it, th there isn't fear built into the system. Yes. You know, and I've, when I speak to supervisors, I, I will ask them, how many of you have said that you have an open-door policy? And, and almost all of them will always raise their hand. But the, 
it's one thing to say that, but it's something else to for an employee or subordinate to be able to know he can yep. walk in and talk to the supervisor and there not be any repercussions. Huge I, difference. I have spoke for companies, one in particular where a new employee reported some older employees as having broken several regulations. Mm-hmm. And the company looked at firing that new employee for reporting the older guys. Wow. So I told the safety director there, I said, well, you know, you're never going to hear anything from the new guys again. Mm-hmm. Because if you, there's this kind of repercussion about reporting the older guys who are breaking the rules, they're not going to say anything. And that's right. absolutely the opposite of what there has to be. Wow. I think these are really important points. Because I think the, the role of the supervisor, how you respond to something that doesn't go well, incredibly important in ensuring it's consistent. So, Brad, thank you very much for sharing that. Kayla, if you could share a little bit about how you heard about it, how you got to the hospital, and kind of what was your Im- impact as a family member and the impact of this growing up? So I found out at school that day, Tracy's granddaughter was in my class and um, mm-hmm. she had been pulled out of school just before lunch by a family member who took her out of school and um, told the other teachers that Tiffany's grandfather had been killed at work. Wow. And just, we grew up in a real small town. And so everyone was talking about it at lunch and at recess. A couple of friends and I were talking, um, and I said, you know, my dad works with Tracy sometimes. I wonder if he was one of the other guys that had been hurt. We had heard that there were two other ones hurt. And our teacher was, you know, kind of, hey, girl, don't worry about it. Nobody, you know, nobody's dad was hurt. It's, it's not your dad. Sure. So we went back in after recess, and we were watching a movie, and my principal came to the room. And he asked if he could talk to my teacher and they walked out into the hall. They talked for just a few minutes and then they came back in. When they came back in, they were both crying. And my teacher said, Kayla, you need to get your things together. So we walked out of of the hall and walked down the hall with the principal. And my mom's best friend was standing at the end of the hall and she was crying and there were teachers around her and, um, she pulled me kind of into a hug and she said, okay, we're going to go get your sisters. I was still in elementary school at the time. My sisters were in middle school at the time. Mm -hmm. So we drove over to the middle school and I kept asking her, Connie, what's wrong? What happened to my dad? And she wouldn't answer. And so we pulled up to the middle school and my sisters got in the car and then Connie let us know that dad had been burned in an explosion. And my mom was with him at that time and that my mom had asked her to come get us out of school so that we wouldn't hear about it from anyone else. And so we ended up staying with, um, with Connie and her family for a total of three weeks while dad was in the burn intensive care unit in Lubbock, Texas, which is about five hours away from our hometown. Mm-hmm. And so we stayed with them. And then my grandparents moved up to Elkhart where we lived and lived with us for the remaining, gosh, two and a half months before we then all ended up down in San Antonio while dad was in rehab. We were in San Antonio for 11 months, all of us together before we came back home. Wow. And and what, what was, um, growing up? So obviously 
Brad made it made it out of the hospital. It sounds like initially there was some some concerns about how how you would get through this. How how did it feel growing up? What was the the impact? Because obviously here you've moved many many times. You had to be in different locations. It brought a lot of interruptions to the day to day. Tell me a little bit more about what it means growing up in this in this case. So, uh, growing initially, initially after the accident, we mm-hmm. were treated like celebrities, and we loved that. You know, everyone was they cared about the Livingston girls and what was going on with the Livingston girls. So, mm-hmm. at first, of course, our daily life was completely one hundred percent disrupted. Sure, but coming back from it after fourteen months when we finally were all home after dad had finished all of his stints at the hospital and rehab. Uh, from that point on, it was kind of, everyone just expected that life was back to normal for the Livingston's, you know, Brad was hurt, but he's alive. Um, we, mm. we hear a lot about mental health issues and trauma and processing trauma sure. now. And that's all very important. But in the nineties, that was not really something that we, heard about and talked about. And so I think Mm. it was for our community members, it was really interesting looking back now. I can see that if any of us had a problem, it was probably just geared up to um, or attributed to, I should say, teenage rebellion. But we look at it Mm -hmm. now and we're like, oh, I was clearly processing some <laughs> some anger in that moment right. or grief. And also we were very, or at least I was, I can't speak for my sisters, but I was very protective of my dad because he, he looks the way he does. He, you can see that he is burned. Mm. I didn't ever want anyone to think that he wasn't loved because he was burned. And so if I saw someone staring at him, right. I would, put my hand in his hand, even, even in high school, even now I will still do it in airports. If we travel together, I'll just grab onto his hand or I'll look at him and, and laugh or something, because I want people to know (laughs) that he, he's not a freak. He is burned and he is different because of that, but he's still a human and he's still loved. And that was just, just a, a thought that I had as we were going through therapy as a family with, part of our therapy was to see people's response to him and not get angry. Mm. And so instead I just got sad. <laughs> I got really sad because I saw people's response to him <laughs> and it made me, it made me sad that people would look at him and see someone who's burned and not who he is. Right. And Brad, um, you, you also had to process your coworker, died in the explosion, What? how the recovery it took time. Tell me a little bit about how it went, knowing kind of everybody, you have a very supportive family that was there for you. Tell me a little bit about your experience in terms of all of this. There's, a, of course, the survivor's guilt that happens. Uh, mm-hmm. but Tracy, like I mentioned, uh, he took care of everybody and and I don't know that there's anyone who worked at our station that did not look up to Tracy. Uh, he stood up for anybody. And so when I found out that he'd been killed, which basically, uh, when I, I was unconscious for two and a half months, 
So when I became conscious, oh. one of the things I asked my wife about, as soon as my head cleared enough and I started asking intelligent questions, was um, what what has happened to Tracy? And and the uh, nurses there had coached her. They knew how my mind would clear and how long it would take for the drugs to wear off and such. And so uh, they waited a few days before they told me that he he had been killed in explosions. And, and it's just immense grief. Uh, it was a, a human being died, but it was Tracy. It was a leader, hmm. someone that everyone respected and looked up to. And uh, for those of us who worked in the pipeline department, uh, you know, he was, he was our main leader, really, overall. Right. Workers. And so, so the instant uh, survivor guilt hit, um, but then I got nowhere to go. I'm stuck in a hospital. Mm. And so just going over and over in my mind for hours and hours and days and weeks and months, what should I have done different? What could I have done different? What procedures were not in place? And and I could never come up with an answer. Um, you know, we had the procedures. We just didn't follow them. Uh, mm-hmm. And... And uh, looking at the, the conversations that all happened uh, prior, while we were still in the break room, uh, half a dozen people there that any one of them could have said, you know, you just can't go over here and weld on these tanks. Uh, but mm-hmm. it never happened. And then, and then me arguing with Tracy and instead of just doing what I need to do. And so all this stuff, just day after day after day, going over in my head. And... Uh, so, uh, then the, with what they told me, you know, you're, you may never walk again. Uh, I had been an athlete my whole life and, and distance running was my biggest thing. I loved running and, uh, my wife had been told, uh, because I didn't have on my gloves and I had on jeans that were 60% cotton and 40% polyester. So laying in that fire, polyester melted. Hmm. all of my legs and into the muscle and my wife was told that if I survived that my legs and my hands would have to be amputated and it was solely by the grace of God that they weren't uh, but then I was told you know there may not be enough muscle left you may never have enough balance to walk and so uh, wow. take, I was 32 years old when it happened you know and basically in the prime of a physical life for a man. And now I can't even go to the bathroom by myself, you know, when I, when I became conscious. And I, I rely on the nurses for everything. And, and of course, my wife was right there. And uh, so then I see my daughters come visit on weekends while I'm at the burn intensive care unit. And, um, and I can see that they're trying to put on a happy face, but it's not happy. Their lives are being completely interrupted. I'm not at home with them. Their mom's not at home with them. And um, so I can see it's just the beginning of me being able to see what I have put them through. And and Uh that became the biggest amount of pain is in in my presentation, I talked to guys about how tough do you think you are? Because when you're going to find out, is not how physical tough you are, 
it's how mentally tough you are when you see what your family's going through that you have caused. Yeah. By me being in a in an industrial incident, uh, causing mm-hmm. the amount of pain that I've caused, and Kayla talks about the ripples, uh, and how to this day she still rides some of those ripples. You know, they they will never go away, perhaps for her, and for other people, and. Um, so, uh, knowing that I'm the cause of that, uh, and, and laying there over and over my head, going over how mm-hmm. easily this all could have been prevented. Right. And, uh, of course, when I, we got home from all the rehab, I went to see Tracy's widow and, and that's a day that's, uh, every bit as tough, if not tougher than the day of the explosions. Uh, when you look a survivor, a family survivor in the face, they look, they look them in the eyes, and you tell them hmm. what happened and why and when it could have been prevented. And you see, and they're crying, and you see the pain and the anger um, that they're dealing with for something that never had to happen. You know, but we saved those three minutes, right? And saving those three mm. minutes on the job is supposed to mean something, apparently. But it doesn't. It's just something, guys no. especially, but women can and do some too, justify in our own minds of how and why we should take these shortcuts. And mm-hmm. or deal with our pride, you know, to cover up a mistake. Uh, and we right. have, have those improper perspectives that I, I talked about in my presentations that lead to bad attitudes. So uh, there's just so many things that uh, could have and should have prevented this from happening. And you talk to anyone that's been hurt and they're going to say the same thing. They, they knew right. better. They knew what to do right. And they just chose to not do it for a number of reasons. So you, you both speak to a lot of audiences, to a lot of organizations around safety and making it personal and and the impact on family. And I think bringing your collective stories is incredibly powerful. What are some of the messages that you share in terms of the key takeaways? Because some of the things, as we mentioned before, that come to mind is the the supervisor needs to be accessible. You talked about how when you say you have your door open, is it really open, right? Because if somebody creates an environment where I don't feel comfortable speaking up or there's unintended rules around not paying overtime, sometimes the message gets cascaded in a way that sends the wrong intent. I can tell you stopping work sounds simple in words, but it's not that straightforward because of the dynamics and everything that comes in. So tell me a little bit about the message that the both of you share to audiences, to team members, to supervisors, to leaders, uh, because I think it's a very powerful story between the both of you. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. I think for me, one of the things that, that I talk about, and, 
and I believe Kayla does too, mm-hmm. is the Stop Work Authority. And I was raised, I'm 63 years old, actually today, and we, <laughs> uh, we were not raised in the 60s to backtalk adults. Mm-hmm. And those in charge were the authority. And so mm-hmm. um, we were not ever given a stop work authority. You do what you're told, and you work hard, yep. and somebody else makes the decisions. And now, mm. you know, we it, it, that didn't start changing, I don't think, until in mid-90s or so. And now mm-hmm. it is it's becoming more prevalent, but there are still, uh, just this year, where I have spoken, uh, companies who say they have stop work authority, but when you single out young guys <laughs> that not and not just a new employee, but a younger one in their twenties, they don't feel like they can stop something without the uh, the older employees getting upset with them. So I, mm-hmm. I talk about you know what what okay here's your choice. Do you want to? You want somebody to be upset with you, or do you want to go home safe? Because many times that's one or the other is going to happen. Well, we can mm-hmm. live with somebody being upset with us, and they're going to get over it most likely. Sure. Uh, but the stop work authority supervisors, I believe, have a great responsibility of making sure employees understand how and when to use that. And that they do have that yeah. right and responsibility. And I'd say I would go even further in saying, how is it reinforced, right? Because like you said, there's there's crew dynamics and then there's organizational dynamics that are impacting that choice. And I remember I've asked some some executives, senior level, when was the last time you recognized somebody who stopped work? And they can't find a time. And if you're not recognizing that, then but you're recognizing getting the job done 200 times, I can tell you have stop work authority, but unintended consequence of I keep hearing, thank you, thank you for Brad for getting it done, as a, but you've never gone praise for stopping work, the unintended consequence is maybe I'm not really supposed to stop work here. Right, and part of that, uh, one of the improvements some companies have made are, are they have mm-hmm. uh, job safety analysis and hot work permits, and we didn't have those. Yep. If we'd have had to fill any, either of those out, there was no way we would have ever done the welding on those tanks that day because it would have been too obvious we can't. So these forms sure. that some companies are using and the tailgate meetings where, okay, let's yep. just refresh what are all the hazards around us right here today. Some of that takes care of a stop work authority. Uh, because you have everybody can yep. everybody focused on the job and heading for the same thing, and so that helps um, not have to stop a job. And, and those are mm-hmm. some people, of course, elderly guys like myself who buck that. You know, we don't want to do the paperwork. We're out here to get it done and go home. And uh, mm-hmm. so, so those are good things that are happening by having some of those forms now to have to fill out. Every day, every day, fill them out. Yep. And uh, as long as people don't become complacent with them, right? Because sometimes if I'm doing the same job over and over, I start getting comfortable that, oh, it's the same as yesterday, but it's not quite the same as yesterday. 
something's a little bit different, the environment's a bit different, it looks a little bit different. So you got you still have to engage and you still need to to be able to comfortably pause. And even if it's just taking a few seconds to say, let's really rethink if it's what we what we talked about in the tailgate or tailboard to make sure it, it really is what we think it is. Right. And one of the things I've been told, uh, Kaylee, you can pipe in here too anytime, but um, some of the younger people have are more willing to step up and say this doesn't look safe, more than even the 50-year-old, because the 50-year-old has worked with this other guy for so many years. And, and so I encourage younger people, um, Kayla's age mm-hmm. uh, on down, you know, if you just smell that it's not right, if you feel like, you know, you have the gut feeling, um, it's it's not just uh, something you can do; it's something you have to do. It is a responsibility. Yeah. So the other message, if I remember, that you really touch on is really the importance of starting safety at the top, um, making sure there's no repercussions if you raise an issue. Uh, and really kind of the reinforcement with new team members in terms of a lot of these principles. I think it's so important in your story as an example. He knew that he had made a mistake, and because there wasn't comfort raising a hand because of what could go wrong, that also contributed to it, really. So it's really important that, to me at least, it's very important that you have a learning environment, and that gets reinforced from the top. Uh, Dan and Dale, but tell me a little bit about the perspective that you share with audiences. So, like you mentioned, we talk to every kind of company, and I have spoke to mm-hmm. companies that it's very obvious they say one thing and do something else when it comes to safety. Right. And and uh, you know, I'm I'm there for a day for a presentation, or maybe I'm there for a few days, a few presentations. I feel like I have a platform to say things that the employees don't feel comfortable saying. And so mm-hmm. there's, there have been times that I have mentioned it's the company's responsibility to provide you with all the training you need, to provide you with the PPE you need, all the equipment, the tools to do your job safe. But then it's up to you to go out and do it safe. And so there's got to be a connection between, okay, uh, Mr. Foreman, I need uh, this new uh, uh, indicator or sensor or something. Well, okay, that doesn't mean I'm going to just get it. But at least I, mm-hmm. I can tell you what it is I think we need that will improve the efficiency of our job. And, of course, more safety is more efficient. And so sure. um, we have to be able to communicate. And to me, that's a lot of it is – the supervisors have to be open to the communication of what is it that you need. And the, and the guys will have to say, the, the subordinates have to be able to say, well, you know, this is why I need it. It's not just that I want it because it's a new toy. This is something that's going to mm-hmm. really improve my ability to do the job. And so the, the that line yeah. of communication between between employees and the supervisors has to be open enough that everyone feels mm-hmm. comfortable that they can do that. And so that starts with, I think, with the day you hire somebody. And, you know, 
Yeah. They, they start going through their initial training, their orientations, and and they're going to get a sense. I mean, people are pretty smart overall. Uh, they're going to get a sense of what's being said that I could do, and they're going to get a sense of what things really we encourage you not to do. And if they if they is any kind of hesitation between or on that line of communication, they're not going to go to the supervisor until they've seen it done. Yeah. So it, it has to start at the top with this open line of mm -hmm. communication. You, you tell me what you need. I will see about getting it. An employee has to understand this is going to yeah. be a budgetary issue. Uh, it may not happen sure. right away. And, and that's an issue, too. I mean, when we want something, we want it today. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's got to be understanding on that end as well. But it, but that's a communication thing. It, you know what I mean? Agreed. Go back to the dark ages. Everything was about communication. Kayla, any, any closing thoughts from you? I think what, what I really love about your story is how the two of you kind of share the story, both from Brad's perspective, but also from the family standpoint. As a favorite daughter, what would be some of the, the, <laughs> the, the additional thoughts you'd have in terms of a message on, on the importance of putting safety first and some of the message around stop work authority in a day-to-day -day world? One of the things I talk about in my presentation is several years after the accident, Dad had a coworker tell him that Tracy had done the exact same type of welding a couple of months earlier with that guy, and he had not stopped Tracy. Mm. And when Dad told me that, it it kind of made me angry because if that coworker had just said something to mm -hmm. Tracy or to a supervisor. Then on September 20th, 1991, my dad might have come home that night. And so I talk about the importance of if you see something going wrong, you need to say something. And you have a responsibility not just to that coworker and not to the company, but to that coworker's family. Mm. Because when you don't say something and something goes wrong, their family is impacted. That's sure. who lives with it for 10 months down the road and 10 years down the road. And now here we are almost 31 years down the road and we still live with it. Mm -hmm. So my presentation is all about the ripple effect and, and how that one little, that one three minute shortcut that my dad didn't take that saved three minutes how that has impacted us moving mm. out, how it's impacted him, how it's impacted me, how it's impacted my, my children. Um, the research has shown that children who experience trauma at an early age go through life with an expectancy that the trauma is going to show up again. And mm. it's absolutely true. I see it played out in my life every day. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's maybe being a little melodramatic, but um, nothing from you, Dad. But I do see it 
playing as I parent my own children and as my spouse goes off to work, mm-hmm. I'm always waiting for something to go wrong because it went wrong when I was nine. So why would it not repeat itself? Right. So that is how I, I drive home as, as I'm speaking. It's not just about you. Mm-hmm. It's about your coworker and their family. It's about your family. It's about going home because who, I mean, who do we all say we work safe for? We work mm-hmm. safe for our children or our spouse or our parents or our dog. If mm-hmm. I don't go home tonight, who feeds my dog? <laughs> Just those really simple things that, that we take for granted when we walk in the door at the end of the day that we're there because of safety right. and we have to be there tomorrow because of safety. That's a, a decision we have to make now. Safety has to be forward thinking. You have to constantly be looking mm-hmm. for what could go wrong. What could go wrong if we don't gauge these tanks, you have to constantly be looking for the next thing so that the next thing that your kid's looking forward to, which might be you helping them with their science project can happen. Sure. And one of the things when Kayla first talked and started setting in on the, so she's sitting on the safety meetings. Um, you know they're given TRIRs and and a lot of different safety calls mm. and and acronyms. And Kayla said, "Dad, I don't know what all those mean." And so I said to her, "You don't have to know. You're not here as an employee who understands." all those statistics are putting up on the slide. You're here representing the family. So she started saying, and she incorporated that into her presentation about, mm-hmm. she'll, um, she's good at pointing. And she, she'll point to the crowd and she'll say, I don't know what your safety rules are and your regulations, and I don't need to know. She said, I'm telling you right. as your children, or I'm representing your children and your family standing here, and I'm telling you, I expect you to go to work and I expect you to come home. I don't need to know what your rules are at mm-hmm. work. And and they don't yeah, care. They don't. Right. Your kids don't care about what rules and regulations, or your kids don't care in in dad's case about who you do or do not like at work. Right. They care yeah. that you're there for their softball game. Kayla, Brad, thank you very much for putting the effort that you do in, in sharing your story and convincing others to, to stay safe, to, to really reinforce within leaders and supervisors the impact that they have in terms of creating the right environment. Uh, I really appreciate the, 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 the effort that you put into making that difference day in and day out. If somebody wants to bring you to present to their organization, what's the best way for them to reach out to your website uh, to, to, to connect with you. Okay, that's uh, safetydifference.com and uh, info at safetydifference.com will we'll get you to, we can go straight to send us an email. And we're both on that, you know, we're both on that website. Absolutely. I really like the joint story that you bring because I think it's it's easy to to see one side, but seeing the two sides just makes it even more powerful. So thank you for, for joining together to, to share that message. Thank you, Eric. We enjoyed doing it. Appreciate you having us on. Thank you for having us. 
Thank you. All the best. Like what we do? Share this on your socials and tell everyone. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.